Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. For months, Syrian regime forces, along with help from their Russian and Iranian allies, have been bombarding the last rebel enclave of Idlib. And events have quickly escalated in recent weeks with some dramatic twists. Russia's defense ministry says the Syrian army will unilaterally abide a ceasefire and is urging militants to do the same. Joining the crisis next door to talk about these developments is Professor Joshua Landis, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Professor Landis, thank you for coming back on the crisis next door. It's a pleasure, Jason. Professor, does this ceasefire even matter? Will the rebels go along with it? Uh, no. The, the ceasefire is um, is temporary. Russia and Syria said it would be temporary when it was first uh, announced uh, long ago, and they came to an agreement with Turkey, which is backing who is uh, backing the rebels, that a buffer zone would have to be cleared around this major highway that runs up through Idlib to Aleppo, the northern capital of Syria, and it connects Aleppo to Damascus. The regime is intent on getting that highway back under its control. It had agreed with Turkey that rebels would move away from that highway. It, that never happened. And the regime is using that as an excuse to break this uh, ceasefire and to move in to Idlib. The battle for Idlib took a, another escalatory turn with regime and Russian warplanes bombing a Turkish convoy and hitting areas around Turkish observation posts in Idlib. Uh, what went wrong between Turkey and Russia and Damascus, and how bad is this situation? Uh, well, it's quite bad. It, it, what went wrong is that the the agreement um, fell apart. Turkey was not able to really control these rebel groups. And we have to remember that the dominant rebel group in this region used to be the, the arm of al-Qaeda, in Syria, which was called El Nusra organization. It's gone through a number of name changes. It has separated itself since from the leaders of El, uh, of Al Qaeda, but it is a hard bitten jihadist organization. It's not going to take orders from Turkey. It's not going to retreat from this highway. And so it's been on its own. Now that has Turkey in a sense wedded to this group. And, um, and they have a number, uh, over a dozen uh, observation points in Idlib province, and one of them has gotten in the middle of this new advance and was bombed. Turkey was resupplying the rebel groups, and Turkey, and, and so the Syrian army bombed them, and they got caught in between. And in a sense, they're trying to keep their head down now. They're pleading, Turkey is pleading with Russia to stop the Syrians. The Syrians are pushing ahead anyway, and Russia is caught in a dilemma of trying to decide who to side with. It's making a big arms deal with Turkey. Russia is trying to um, 
to lure Turkey away from the United States and towards Russia, which is having a lot of success doing. Just recently, Turkey and Erdogan bought these S-400 anti-aircraft missiles from Russia. America is furious at this, has kicked Turkey out of their um, jet airplane manufacturing arm, which is worth $9 billion to Turkey. So Turkey used to make or is making parts for the latest American jets. And now they're going to have that all taken away from them. The sale of these jets are not going to go through. So Turkey is at a real turning point in its strategic alignment now, where it's beginning to break its alignment to the United States and to NATO and move into Russia's orbit. And uh, this leaves Russia really calling the shots in the region. Does Ankara have to go along with what Moscow wants because it did make that move away from the U.S. and NATO and towards Russia with the S-400 missile system? Yes, it does. On the other hand, Russia has to appeal to Turkey. And, and I think Turkey is hoping that Russia will back it up in Idlib, but Russia is not backing it up. The uh, Assad and his army are pushing forward. And from the beginning of this conflict, um, Russia said that Syrian sovereignty should be returned to all of Syria. So that promise is weighing on this. And, and Russia has a lot to prove by, in a sense, trying to return Assad's sovereignty to all of Syria, the government's sovereignty, and to upholding this principle, which Putin said um, he was going to uphold and that Russia should uphold and the international community should uphold, which is the sovereignty of governments around the world, whether they were authoritarian or not. Do you think Damascus, with Russian and Iranian help, is strong enough to get rid of the rebels in Idlib, or does it need Turkey's help to do that? No, I think it's strong enough to get rid of the rebels as long as they have Russian air power. Air power is the decisive key in this entire region. We've seen it over and over again. Um, that's how the United States won the Gulf War. It won against Iraq and it won against ISIS. You can, in this desert and fairly barren open land, it's very easy uh, to destroy enemy troops from the air. And that's that's the problem in Idlib, although Idlib is, it, it has lots of olive groves, agricultural land. It doesn't have dense uh, jungles. It's not Vietnam. You can't hide. And, uh, and air power is decisive. This offensive has been going on for quite some time. The rebels have held out to some degree. Do you think they're on borrowed time that this will likely wrap up by the end of this year? Or might it last a bit longer than that? I think it's going to last much longer than the end of this year. Um, there's a lot of territory. These are extremely well-armed rebels. Turkey has provided them with <clears throat> anti-tank missiles, um, grad rockets, all kinds of uh, defensive uh, weaponry. They're also good troops. They have been fighting eight years of a civil war. They are led by these uh, jihadist forces that are willing to make incredible sacrifices, just the way that the United States had a tremendously hard time taking Mosul or taking Raqqa. Um, the Syrian army, which is much weaker than the United States, is going to have a very hard time fighting back through these cities. And it's going to cause tremendous damage to the population 
um, the civilian population that populates Idlib province. And we believe that there's somewhere between two and three million civilians there. They have nowhere to go. They're trapped. And the world is focusing in on this to, to shine a light on the brutality of Assad's recapture of this territory. Also very interesting regarding the rebels, you mentioned the fact that it's mostly a jihadist-led group, HTS, that's the powerful rebel group in Idlib. Are there many moderate rebels left, or is this essentially now a jihadist rebel fight against the regime? Well, it is. It is essentially a jihadist rebel fight. We know that there's a bunch of Chechens there. There are lots of Uyghurs. We believe about three to five thousand Uyghur uh, Uyghurs fighting in this. There are different uh, groups that are allied together. Now there are moderate rebels. I mean, it depends on how you define moderate. But there are rebels that are particularly ensconced in the Turkish zone north of Idlib. But they have been streaming into Idlib. I think with the encouragement of Turkey to reinforce the more hard bitten rebels because they understand that as Assad moves his way forward. It's going to come to them next and that they need to stick together or they're going to sink together. So there are um, there are other rebel militias that are fighting in here. Turkey has also agreed to a safe zone in northern Syria to protect American backed Kurdish fighters, even though Ankara says the YPG is a terrorist group posing a threat to its security. Which side benefits the most from this safe zone, Turkey or the Kurds? Well, um, the safe zone is really a. A, uh, it's going to benefit Turkey. Turkey has threatened to um, – now, your audience should be reminded that this is a very different situation from Idlib. We're talking about the 30 percent of Syria that the United States is in control of, and they use this force called the Syrian Democratic Forces, named by the Americans, that is largely Kurdish-led. And the Kurds who lead this force are connected to Kurdish rebels inside Turkey. Turkey looks at them all as one massive terrorist organization. The United States does not. It considers the Kurdish group PKK inside Turkey as a terrorist organization, but not its wing that's in Syria. And um, and this causes – and this has been the cause of major difference and contretemps between the United States and Turkey. It's one of the major reasons that Turkey has turned away from the United States towards Russia. The United States is arming up these Kurds in Syria – it did so in order to destroy ISIS and to continue the war against ISIS. But by doing it, it is encouraging Kurdish nationalism, which is anathema to Turkey. And that has led to this uh, toing and froing. And Turkey is insisting that there be a buffer zone of some 26 miles uh, between its border and this American-backed Kurdish enclave. America does not want to give that buffer zone to Turkey, but Turkey is demanding it, and they've they've begun to try to formulate some kind of an agreement where the YPG, these these Kurdish group, will pull back from the Turkish border. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the latest developments in Syria with Professor Joshua Landis director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Erdogan has publicly acknowledged that he's given up on his plan for a wider safe zone in northern Syria and is accepting a slimmer one in favor of moving ahead with a U.S. plan. Has Erdogan bitten off more than he could chew in Syria? Uh, yes, he has. Look, at Erdogan 
made the same mistake that the United States made. Um, he bet that Assad would be defeated, that the Muslim Brotherhood or pro-Islamist light groups would conquer. They would be like his own party, the Ak Party in Turkey. They would be sympathetic to him. He would help them curry their favor, and he would expand his influence through Syria by helping the opposition. President Obama pushed him into this decision early on, believing that this would be the good strategy for the United States, that you'd get rid of Assad, who's pro-Russian Iranian, you would get a Sunni ascendancy that would be pro-Saudi Arabia, pro-America, and uh, they bet wrong. Now, for America, betting wrong in Syria is small change because it's thousands of miles away. But for Turkey, it's been a monstrous mistake because it ends up with 4 million Syrian refugees inside his territory. It's been backing these militias that all want to escape into Turkey. Turkey doesn't want them. That's where Idlib comes in because this Idlib enclave, if it's defeated by the Syrian army, where do all those rebels, those hard-bitten jihadists go? They have to flee into Turkey. Turkey doesn't want that. So Turkey is holding the bag here, and, um, and the Turkish population is turning against this big Syrian refugee population. It's backfiring on Erdogan. How are the refugees faring in Turkey? A tremendous population, 4 million plus, and growing with, of course, Idlib in the gun sites of the regime right now. And what kind of pressure is Erdogan facing from the refugee crisis in Turkey? Tremendous pressure. Turks are fed up. The competition for jobs, it's an analogous situation to Mexican immigrants, illegal immigrants in the United States. It's become a wedge issue in uh, very contested elections in Turkey. Erdogan has been forced to jump on this bandwagon, and he has been very supportive of these refugees in the last eight years. But now he's beginning to turn against them slowly. It is backfiring on Erdogan, and he's got to back begin to backpedal. It's not something he wants to do, but I think it's something he'll be forced to do. Moscow is trying to get Ankara and Damascus on the same page. But as you mentioned, Erdogan has remained steadfast in his dislike for Assad and has not normalized ties. Is Moscow's push dead in the water? You know, it's a heavy lift. And increasingly, we see Turkey, although it's resisting Syria's onslaught and it's going to Russia to try to get Syria to stop, ineluctably, Syria is pushing forward. Turkey is not willing put its troops into Syria to defend Idlib. And that means that eventually it's going to lose it. And these rebels are going to be beaten because Russia is allowing its planes to be used to bomb Idlib province. And that is something that Erdogan is adjusting to, Turkey is adjusting to, like what's going on between, between the United States and uh, in Afghanistan, where we're biting our tongue or biting our cheek and, and negotiating with the Taliban, who we swore for years that we would not negotiate with, and now we're doing it. And Turkey uh, is probably going to be forced to do the same with Assad. He's not going anywhere. Nobody is mobilizing to turn him out. Uh, he has won the war in large extent. He's impoverished. He's broken down. He's weak. But he is um, still the master of Syria. And all the regional governments are beginning to come around to that uh, realization. And we see there's a fair going on, big trade fair in Damascus this week. The Emiratis have sent a big delegation, despite 
the United States, warning them not to do so and saying that any businessmen that go to this fair will possibly be sanctioned by the United States. Nevertheless, businessmen from the region are beginning to trickle in. And uh, it's more than just Turkey that's going to have to um, put up with Assad remaining in power in Damascus. They can obviously see the tremendous rebuilding opportunities across Syria's devastated landscape. Now, when Idlib does fall, does that mean that the Syrian war is over or will insurgencies continue across the country? Well, that's the big fear, is that insurgencies will continue, that ISIS is not dead, that there are still cells around the country that have been attacking and carrying out uh, terrorist terrorist explosions, roadside bombs, even uh, coalescing and attacking various outposts. And we've seen that in both Iraq and Syria. This is, of course, a very lively fear for the United States. The United States still remains in 30% of the country. So the war will not be over once Idlib is taken. There is a big swath of the country. In fact, one of the most valuable hunks of the country because more than 50% of the oil is in the American zone. America controls the big Euphrates Dam, and it controls much of the agriculture in the north. So Assad has far from ended this war. It is going to go on. And as it shifts from Idlib over to the American zone, America is going to be right in the middle of it. We've seen the Trump administration vacillate on Syria. But given what you just said, do you think the U.S. will be in Syria long term? You know, that is a million dollar question. Uh, Trump wanted to get out. Once the ISIS caliphate was destroyed, his generals convinced him not to do that. And we'll have to see who wins the elections. The Democratic candidates have been extraordinarily silent on this issue. And very few people have really challenged them on it because they don't understand the situation. They don't understand the stakes. They don't know what we're doing. And I I suspect that many of the candidates don't either. And uh, so it's something that Americans are going to have to get educated on. There, there are, so far, it's been relatively inexpensive for America to own this hunk of Syria. My hunch is it's going to become more and more expensive because Turkey is going to turn up the heat. So is Iran. So is Syria and probably Russia as well. This war has been going on for more than eight years. It's been as brutal as any war that we've seen since World War II. Do you think the world is simply exhausted even thinking about Syria, and that's part of the overall ignorance to what's happening on the ground in Syria? Well, it is exhausted. But it's also, I think, the world has most powers have come to the conclusion that they're not going to unseat Assad. They didn't like the opposition that they had had at first had great hopes for. Um, it turned out to be – it became increasingly radicalized. It was very fragmented. And um, – and increasingly, Europe and the West turned against it and uh, and decided they weren't going to go after Assad after all. They were going to go uniquely after ISIS and al-Qaeda, which is what they've done, to the great dismay of the Syrian opposition. But that's the situation. So in a sense, all those eyes that are averted, it's not only because of exhaustion, it's because they didn't like what they saw. Do you think Moscow and Tehran will maintain troops on the ground in Syria long-term to ensure the longevity of the Assad regime? Yes. Uh, They're not going to let this regime collapse after fighting for so many years and spending so much money. This is very important to their strategic architecture in the north of the Middle East. I think that Israel and the United States um, wish 
to roll back Iran from Syria is going to remain just that, a wish. I think that uh, they don't have the capacity or the will to turn Iran and Russia out of Syria. It will be interesting to see how this continues to develop in Syria. Professor Landis, thank you very much for joining us on The Crisis Next Door. Well, it's a pleasure. We've been joined by Professor Joshua Landis, Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 